What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. This is our program that's geared primarily for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. We ask that question every day. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is uh, 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. 2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams coming to you once again from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan. We had a lovely day with all of our Midwest radio affiliates yesterday. And quite frankly, I couldn't get out of the airport in Detroit, which was flooded last night due to torrential rain. So I'm hoping to get out later tonight, but it gives me an opportunity to be with you and to be with Charles Beery, our producer, our call screener, Rich Jesse, Jeff Burson, handling our social media efforts, and the host, as he is every single day, Dr. David Andrews. How in the world are you? Hey, Jack. I'm fine. How about you? I didn't bring my umbrella. I'm going to be honest with you. Oh, all right. Things happen, right? (laughs) So we got an email here from Mary. She says, here in western Montana, we have a priest from Africa and one from Poland. Wonderfully holy priests, but a mite difficult to understand sometimes. One of the one of them prints out his homilies so that we who are hard of hearing can follow along easily. Plus, I can use the copy as an aid for contemplation. Um, you know, I think most of us have found our, you know, the, the United States, unfortunately, is mission territory uh, on, a, on a global scale. And I think we've all found ourselves with priests from non-native lands and um you know a lot of times these are are very holy priests and we really need to go the extra mile to uh accommodate them sometimes don't we um yes but jack i didn't hear a question there was there did did she have a question Uh, no there there wasn't one and i just read the email unfortunately as uh as our producer man, Mr. Charles Beery, gave it to us. Okay, well, and, you know, uh, I, can, so, I can definitely speak to that. I can make a comment about go. it. So, so, you know, here in the Diocese of Birmingham, where I live, we have a number of extern priests that come from outside the diocese. And uh, some of them come from countries where English is widely spoken, and, and some don't. And they vary widely in their command of the English language. My, my experience with the extern priests uh, is, by and large, extremely positive. And at the level of my family life and the pastoral care to my family and to me as an individual, I found that I've actually received far more direct pastoral care from these external priests than I have oftentimes from uh, from American-born clergy. I mean, they've really, really gone the extra mile to reach out to me and to my family, particularly in times of crisis, to offer the sacraments and consolation and friendship. And so uh, they they really have a tremendous, a lot, a, a tremendous amount to offer 
and are often extremely self-sacrificial people. Uh, you, you Sometimes you take it a little bit away when it comes to the homiletical department, because if their English isn't that strong, uh, the homiletical skills aren't that strong, um, yeah, that, that definitely is a... Uh, as unfortunate side effect, right? And I know many of them work on that. Some of them work with uh, uh, with um, uh, speech pathologists to do to do accent reduction, that kind of thing. But it's a challenge. And I mean, the situation that we're in with vocations in the United States, ideally, you would like to have people who have a strong command of the language being able to proclaim the gospel and preach homilies. But this is this is a, a necessity in some instances. But like I said, it, it's a even though sometimes the English is lacking in the homiletics, it comes with many other benefits, and that personal pastoral care is one of them. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Mark's watching us on YouTube. He says, Dr. Anders, can you please explain again how to defend the faith's teaching about purgatory, especially to our Protestant brothers and sisters? God yeah, bless you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I'll tell you what helped me when I was a Protestant coming into the Catholic Church. And one thing that did not help me is many times Catholics would come up with their favorite um, proof text from the Scriptures. and They would say, ha, ah, this proves purgatory. And as a Protestant, I was never really persuaded by that proof-texting approach. Um, one, because I didn't think the texts in question were all that determinative, and secondly, I didn't really get at kind of the underlying logic of the doctrine of purgatory. And once I was sort of open to the idea of Catholicism, not yet Catholic, but trying to make sense of the whole project, I, I personally kind of found a way, an approach to the question of purgatory that made a lot of sense and still continues to be compelling to me to this day. And, and that is, I don't start with purgatory. I start with what does the Scripture, what does the tradition tell us about the nature of salvation and our relationship to God, and what can I extrapolate from that? And one of the things I found in Scripture was that there, uh, Scripture makes a distinction between forgiveness on the one hand and the obligation to make reparation for offenses on the other. And, and the two are conceptually distinct. And so you take something like um, the life of King David. And a couple of times in David's life, David does something egregiously wrong, and he's confronted by a prophet in the name of the Lord, and he comes to repentance, and he is forgiven. So forgiveness has been extended. He's expressed his contrition. But then God imposes a penance. And that happens both over the affair with Bathsheba. It also happens when David illicitly orders a census of the people of Israel that God had told him not to do. And in both cases, he gave a repentance, David is forgiven, and yet God still imposes penance. And so that, that kind of blew my Protestant mind when I thought about it, because for a Protestant, once you're forgiven for your sins, there's literally nothing left to do. You're, you're, it's all taken care of. The idea that you could be forgiven and yet also have to do penance it was far into me. But when I began to think about it, not only in Scripture, but even in, in, in human life, even in common experience, I recognized that this is, in fact, how we function in normal relationships and in civil justice as well. So take an example. If I offend my wife and, uh, and, uh, and, and she tells me that I, she's offended and I apologize, she might forgive me. But it do, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to try to do something to make it up to her. And that's what penance is, basically. So that, that's one idea. I'm not going to have time to go into the others because here comes the break. 833-288-EWTN. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders.
You know, yesterday we celebrated the Feast of St. Rose of Lima, and we've got a beautiful, beautiful holy reminder at EWTN's religious catalog, a 26-inch St. Rose of Lima statue. Uh, She's the first person born in the Western Hemisphere to be officially and formally canonized by the church. Uh, Invite St. Rose into your home with this magnificent uh, statue. Uh, She's depicted wearing a black and white Dominican habit because she joined the Third Order of St. Dominic and took a vow of perpetual virginity. She is gazing lovingly at the Christ child as he holds a cross in one hand and extends his other toward her. Uh, Imported from Peru, uh, this beautiful statue is hand-painted. It's made of fiberglass, and it has glass eyes. This is a quality piece. It's available now at EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more about standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. A couple of lines open for you still at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Ben in Kansas City, Kansas, watching us on YouTube today. Ben, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, so my question was essentially... So one of the things that's kind of keeping me from being a Catholic is the position that women can't be in leadership, in particular um, ordained. And I, I don't know, I looked into it some, and it doesn't fit well with me. It almost seems a little discriminatory. So I was kind of wondering what your thoughts were on it and kind of get an explanation. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Well, first let me, let me deal with the question of leadership. Uh, because the Church actually teaches that women should be in leadership, must be in leadership in the Church and in civil society in in many different domains. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, the radio station you're listening to, the programming is produced by EWTN, which is a large media, television, radio, conglomerate, Catholic network, and it was founded by a woman, by a nun, Mother Angelica, um, who, uh, until her retirement, w- was the chief executive power <laughs> behind uh, the largest rel- Catholic religious broadcaster in the world. And so she had a tremendous amount of direct executive authority over her own agency, um, as well as uh, a, a tremendous bully pulpit that she was able to broadcast around the world and, and have a profound impact on uh, on church life uh, literally across the globe. I mean, uh, arguably one of the most influential uh, uh, Catholic women leaders uh, in the world in the 20th century. So uh, that's just a, an example I've got very close to home because I work for her network. And her picture, her portrait greets me when I walk in the door every day. Um, there are women that are members of Vatican dicasteries. These are the, the agencies of the Holy See that, that formulate Vatican policy and execute the Pope's policy in their various domains across the world. There are, there are women that are on the International Theological Commission, which is a, an, an appointed position of, uh, of leading theologians around the world that, uh, that write position papers and, and help the Holy See in articulating the Catholic faith to the world in a highly intellectual and compelling way. Um, uh, you know, there are women at the heads of all other kinds of Catholic agencies. One of the domains that I have worked in over the years is Catholic education, um, which is, of course, just replete with uh, incredibly gifted and talented 
women in positions of leadership. When it comes to the question of moral authority, moral suasion, women have always exercised a tremendous power uh, within the church. So at the top of the hierarchy of moral suasion, of course, would come the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, whom, as Wordsworth said, is humanity's uh, solitary boast, and, and definitely the Catholic uh, who we believe has the greatest power and authority to m move the hand of God, as it were, by her prayers and intercessions, and is universally held to be the model of, uh, of Christian sanctity, apart from Jesus himself. Um, in, uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, you know, those that, that are still on earth, uh, the Church has, has often looked to female saints to provide... Um, moral clarity and guidance and challenge even to popes, even to bishops, even to priests and, and men in authority. Catherine of Siena, uh, late medieval uh, Catholic laywoman who became a third order Dominican, uh, was so highly regarded uh, as, a, as a saintly woman in her own day, I, I think she was probably the closest thing that we could point to to a prophetess, like an Old Testament prophetess, um, who would rebuke even the Pope, and he would listen to her and, and literally bend his will to her counsel, even to his own personal hurt, because she had that much power in the Church. Um, someone similar, I think, in the 20th century would be Mother Teresa of Calcutta, um, who was fearless about speaking the truth to power, um, to politicians and to church leaders alike, uh, even when that truth was uncomfortable, she would say her mind and had, of course, a tremendous amount of power and influence. So I, I just think it's just, just, just false to say that the church doesn't recognize or advocate for women in leadership. Uh, there are women in leadership just all over the Catholic world, and the church literally couldn't function without them. And uh, there's a nod to that fact in a recent document from the Vatican, uh, the General Directory of Catechesis, um, actually points directly to the unique contributions of women in handing on the faith in the structured work of catechesis. And literally without women in leadership in this work, uh, it's almost unthinkable that we could that we'd have a functioning catechetical project. I mean, there's such a central role to women in this. Um, and uh, so, you know, I mean, I just, I just think the accusation is wrong. It's just uh, ill-informed. Now, when it comes to the sacred priesthood, that is a particular type of leadership in the Church. Um, and, uh, and, and specifically, the, uh, the, the leadership of the celebration of the liturgy. And there, the teaching of the Church is that the priest stands in the person of Christ. Uh, he has a function in the liturgical drama, which is to be a stand-in for Jesus. He is, as it were, a second Christ, an altar Christus. And uh, in relationship to the Church as a father to a family, as a husband to a wife— and that is Christ's relationship to the church, is that of husband to wife. And so his, uh, his identity with Jesus in that particular domain requires that he be a male person. Um, so that's theological rationale. We also look to the fact that Christ himself ordained only men to the apostolate, only men to the sacred priesthood. And 2,000 years of Catholic tradition have, have confirmed that. So that's really, that's really part of the universal, ordinary, magisterial teaching of the Church. And one of the, one of the rules of uh, sort of canonicity, if you will, St. Vincent of Lorraine said a long time ago, that which is uh, taught everywhere, always, and by all. And that, that the, the, 
male-only priesthood absolutely falls under that description. I mean, you, there, are, there are some things in Catholic faith that have just never been questioned. They've always been part of the Constitution of the Church. Um, believe it or not, the agreement, sort of universal agreement on the male-only priesthood is, uh, is far more easily documented than even the belief in Christ's divinity which clearly is dogma number one for Catholicism, that Christ really is truly God. But think about it, the 4th century had a major controversy over the question of Christ's divinity. Uh, no one ever thought to question the male-only priesthood until the mid-20th century with the rise of modern feminism. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833 3986. Chris is in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, watching us also on YouTube today. Chris, you're on with Dr. Anders. Thanks for taking my question. Um, <clears throat> my question is, is um, when a Catholic um, commits a mortal sin, uh, before they can get to confession, what should they do? Thank you. Great question. They should make an act of perfect contrition. They should be like King David, who said to God in Psalm 51, Against you, you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. Uh, you know, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a contrite heart you will not despise. So you bring that contrition to God. Uh, you, you make your amends to God out of a sincere contrition. That is to say, you are sorry for having offended him. Uh, who is worthy of all our love and, uh, and adoration. And an act of perfect contrition absolves sins. Uh, you can you can be absolved of your sin and reconciled to God through an act of perfect contrition, even absent the sacramental confession. Now, you should not neglect the sacramental confession because you still need the the uh, uh, the tribunal of the church, the juridical power of the church, to readmit you to holy communion. Uh, but in terms of restoring that life of sanctifying grace in your soul, that can happen through an act of perfect contrition. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Joseph is in College Park, Maryland, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joseph, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Yeah, hi. Thank you for uh, taking my question. So I have a question about the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. So if we believe that the Lord God Almighty lives on the inside of us, then why the Holy Eucharist? It's like going to get something that we've already got. Yes, thank you. I profoundly appreciate the question. <clears throat> so here is, uh, here is a misunderstanding about uh, the nature of our dwelling in Christ and Christ dwelling in us. There is a sense in which... Uh, if you are baptized, you become a member of Christ's body, and that character, that identity, cannot be effaced, even by mortal sin. Even by mortal sin. There's a very enigmatic passage in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where he exhorts, uh, don't go in for prostitutes, because if you go in for prostitutes, you unite the body of Christ with a prostitute. Clearly, he's speaking to people who he anticipates will be in mortal sin, and yet he says even that state of mortal sin does not separate them from being a member of Christ's body. Um, uh, but, clearly, that's not the ideal condition for a Christian. Just being a member of the body is not enough. We want to grow up into maturity in all things in Christ. 
Um, and so we also find so many exhortations in Scripture to growing up to our full stature in, in Jesus. Uh, St. Paul re- says in Galatians chapter 4, My little children, of whom I travail in birth, until Christ be formed in you. Right? He's looking for this sort of uh, developmental growth in Christian identity, whereby we come to more fully possess the mind of Christ. That's another language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 2 and Philippians chapter 2. He talks about having the mind of Christ. This is a state of mind, a state of consciousness that a Christian can aspire to where they come to see the world through Jesus' eyes. Now, as it happens, uh, the mode of indwelling that you speak about in John chapter 14, Christ says, uh, if you love me, keep my commands, then the Father and I will come to you and make our dwelling within you. So this, this note of indwelling has to do specifically with our minds. St. Thomas says that Christ indwells us, the Holy Spirit indwells us, as the known is in the knower, and the beloved is in the lover. All right, so let's look at that in relational terms. Uh, My wife indwells me, as the known is in the knower, and the beloved is in the lover. I, I know my wife, I know what she values, I know what she likes, I know what she fears, I know what she aspires to, and... Because I love her, her goals and fears and aspirations and, and, uh, and interests are to a certain extent my own, right? I take them on as if she were a second self. But clearly, it is possible to do that more or less. I can be more or less identified with my wife's priorities, with her values, with her fears, with her aspirations, with her hopes. And the more closely I am identified with those, the more deeply I love her. Same thing is true of Jesus. So the kind of indwelling you're talking about, you're talking about this interior indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, which is this kind of relational indwelling. It's the indwelling whereby we come to value what Christ values, to love what he loves, to aspire to what he aspires to. And that's something that we grow into progressively. Uh, This is when Paul says that Christ being fully formed within us. We have a sort of partial indwelling. We have a more deep indwelling as we come to more fully participate in his divine personality. So everything else in Christian life, including all of the sacraments, is ordered to that progressive sanctification. How can I come to more fully indwell Christ? How can I come to more fully possess his mind? How can I come to more fully value what he values? And I I do that, among other ways, by participating in the sacramental mysteries. And the sacraments are signs Right? They teach, uh, and we forget this. When we approach Holy Communion and we, we rightly emphasize the real presence, but we are wrong if we forget that the real presence is embedded um, in a sacrament, which is a sacred sign, and because it is a sign, it teaches. There's a cognitive, psychological dimension to our participation in the sacraments uh, that is meant to habituate us to a new way of being in the world, namely Jesus' way of being in the world. So my continual participation in all of the sacraments, if I do them correctly, right, if I approach them with the right disposition, uh, will habituate me more and more to the mind of Christ and cause me to dwell more deeply within him and him more deeply within me. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. Pick up the phone and give us a call. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? 
3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Still a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. Next up is Mike in Janesville, Wisconsin, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Mike, you are on with Dr. Anders. Thank you. I, I'm a huge fan of yours, Dr. Anders. Um, I uh, am a convinced Catholic. I've taken... 16 courses through Bishop Barron's, uh, you know, course uh, structure that he has. And I am so eager to enter into conversations with a lot of people that are devout Protestant um, evangelical Christians, and they're all family members, and they're all, I love these people, and I've, you know, I've always loved them, but I just find it... uh, I get conversational about helping you, and I kind of fight from, you know, not getting argumentative. I says, you know, I believe everything that your mother believes and everything your father believes and everything Mother Teresa believes. It's kind of what, <laughs> because their mother, their parents were devout, and my parents were devout and convinced Catholics. So I I just, uh, and I, I can't wait for your program. You know, I keep it on uh, on uh, TV. Um, uh, DVR is tough because you have such a great uh, approach, and all the people in Bishop Barron's courses are kind of like you. They were uh, most of the teachers are Protestant background that the tr- that their study led them to the truth of Catholicism. Um, and I just have to make one comment that I love uh, about women and uh, women being honored the Catholic Church. We name our churches after women. So that's pretty high honor. <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, I yeah. really appreciate the kind words, Mike. Thank you so much. And, uh, and you know, kudos for taking all these classes and educating yourself in the faith. <clears throat> I mean, you're going about it the right way. In terms of in terms of actually engaging Protestants, <clears throat> you know, my I, I like personally for them to come after me. You know, I like to make myself available and uh, to live my Catholic faith with generosity. Um, I typically am not out. I'm trying to proselytize. I'm trying to make relationships where questions about the faith can be naturally engaged. <laughs> but sometimes Protestants make it easy when they when they just attack you head on and start going after some aspect of Catholic doctrine or or asserting some point of Protestant doctrine with an attitude that presumes your agreement when in fact you don't agree. But there's some kind of opening, and that's generally what I like, you know, to do it that way. So I'm not so I'm not being aggressive. I'm not proselytizing. And, and then the better you know your Catholic faith, and, and not just what the Church teaches, but why, and the better you understand how the teaching of the Church is, is grounded in the data of revelation and, and reason and human experience, uh, the more equipped you are to respond. Now, you know, Protestantism, in my opinion, is, is going after the weak points is kind of like shooting fish in a barrel, because, I mean, from my vantage point now on the other side of the Tiber, 
they're just there's so many logical holes. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't remain Protestant. I could not stay an intellectually fulfilled Christian, and uh, an intellectually honest Christian and remain Protestant. And I mean, I know you know my story. I won't rehash it at, at great length. But I mean, the two points that really just hammered me in, as a Protestant and made me absolutely have to consider Catholicism were number one, Luther's contention that the doctrine of justification by faith is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. That 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 is just the be all and end all of Christian faith. And of course, my engagement with Christian history as well as Scripture led me to the conclusion that that couldn't possibly be true, right? I mean, the, the, the data from the Bible and Christian history is just overwhelming um, that Luther's doctrine of faith alone is an utter innovation. And, and, and so much flows from that in Protestantism that it's not hard to get back to that, uh, to that uh, bedrock issue. And the other one, of course, was the doctrine of the Bible alone, Scripture alone. And I'll never forget the day that, um, you know, I'd already sort of given up on justification by faith alone, and... Uh, I knew I had to systematically examine other Protestant doctrines. And I thought, okay, well, what about the biggie? What about sola scriptura? And I asked myself this question. I said, why do I believe that? Why do I believe in sola scriptura? And as soon as I put the question to myself, I realized the only reason I believed it was because it was what my tradition taught me. And the irony of that, re- of that revelation has never left me, right? That Protestants who, who allege to decry tradition as, uh, as a lesser authority or no authority— in my judgment, based their entire doctrine of authority on their own tradition, right? Luther's, Luther's rejection of, uh, of Catholic teaching is the only authority they can point to for their doctrine of the Bible, because the Bible itself doesn't affirm its own status as a rule of faith. So it's a logically self-contradictory, incoherent doctrine. And I, a person can't hold it, I think, and be hold it knowledgeably and really be intellectually honest. And and there are so many other problems of biblical interpretation and the formation of the canon, and you just go on down the list. It just it just is a house of cards that's going to come down. So those are the weak points that I've pressed on. You've probably heard me tell the story of the Protestant friend of mine who's now a Catholic, um, uh, to whom I asked the question, you know, you believe in the Bible as the rule of faith? And he said, yeah, that's right. And I said, well, how do you know the difference between a dogma and an opinion? those things on which all Christians have to agree and those about which they might legitimately disagree. And, uh, and there is no principled way to answer that question if you're a Protestant. Because, I mean, they all have an answer to it. They, they will assert some principle, but that assertion is always arbitrary. You know, they'll say something like, well, you know, you only have to agree on the stuff that's relevant for salvation. Okay, well, how do you know what's relevant for salvation? I mean, it's a circular argument, right? And uh, and I put that question to my friend, and he realized uh, that he didn't have an answer, and about six months later he became Catholic, right? Because for a Catholic, the principled answer to the question is the teaching church declares. That That is an objective point of reference to define the content of Christian faith and practice. The teaching church declares. That's how I know the difference between dogma and opinion. And lo and behold, it's an authority that Christ himself instituted when he said, go make disciples of all nations, teach them everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of, couple, rather, of, of open phone lines, easy for me to say. And plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Lloyd is in Dubuque, Iowa, listening on Aquinas Communications. Lloyd, thanks for holding. You're on with Dr. Anders. Uh, I was wondering if what's the difference between a sacrilege and a mortal sin? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So uh, typically, we we use the word sacrilege or sacrilegious 
to speak about a sin against the first commandment if we cast aspersions or disrespect upon God or some sacred object or person who ought to be held in reverence, uh, you know, God or Christ or the saints or the church, that sort of thing. That would be that would be the sin of sacrilege. And the sin of sacrilege could be committed with more or less gravity, right? It's possible, uh, say, uh, someone might be brought up to use the Lord's name in vain as a common idiom in their vocabulary and never really give thought to what they were saying, right? And that's very different from someone who intentionally wishes to curse God. And so it's, it might be possible materially to commit a sacrilegious act that nevertheless would not be imputable to that individual as mortal sin, as grave sin. Mortal sin, by contrast, can include acts of sacrilege, but it's any gravely immoral act that we commit with our eyes wide open, with full knowledge, with freedom of the will, not under compulsion. We know that what we're doing is wrong. It's gravely wrong. That's a mortal sin. So a sacrilege could be potentially a mortal sin, but so could, say, murder or adultery or, you know, grand theft or what have you. Any, any kind of gross indignity against God and the human person uh, can, can be a mortal sin if, if a person perpetrates that with their eyes wide open and not under compulsion. We got an email here from Colton, Dr. Andrews. He says, what is the origin of dispensationalism and how do we refute it? Yeah. Oh, I love this question. So dispensationalism <clears throat> was the brainchild of a certain John Nelson Darby, who was a 19th century uh, Protestant theologian from the Plymouth Brethren tradition. And uh, the, the origins are really a couple different aspects to dispensational origins, but I think the logic goes like this. First of all, Dispensationalists typically take a fundamentalist view of the Bible, which is to say that they they read individual texts uh, out of context, quite literally and straightforward, as the man on the street would understand, you know, the denotative sense of the words, um, and without without any kind of leveling, without any kind of nuance, and uh, and so even though the Bible is a very diverse book, and there. Are there are portions of the Bible that have to interpret other portions. There's a kind of hierarchy in the way you should approach Scripture. Your dispensationalist doesn't do that. He, he sort of thinks it's all on a level. And so that poses a difficulty for the interpreter because there are uh, images and themes and topics in the Old Testament that get shaded in the New Testament, that get interpreted within a certain theological context, that get allegorized. And the dispensationalist is allergic to all of that kind of nuance, to that allegorization, to that figurative interpretation. And specifically, when the Old Testament speaks about the coming kingdom of God, it uses a lot of geopolitical language. It will talk about Israel conquering her neighbors, about foreign kings being led in train to offer tribute in Jerusalem, about camels laden with gold uh, traipsing through the city of David, that kind of language. And obviously, when you look at the kingship of Christ the Messiah, Jesus is not about conquering pagan nations or collecting tribute in gold and silver, and he can do without the camels, thank you very much. And so, for a Catholic, this is no problem, right? Because those passages of the Old Testament, like all of the Old Testament, is to be read in its spiritual sense, is to be read as allegory, as it points to and is ultimately fulfilled and completely comprehensively fulfilled in the person of Christ, who said his kingdom is not of this world. 
But for the dispensationalist, uh, these themes do pose a problem because what they are looking for in prophecy, what they're looking for in the future age, <clears throat> would seem not to have arisen in Jesus' time, seems not to have come with Christ the Messiah. <clears throat> so that's one problem for the dispensationalist. Here's another problem for the dispensationalist. They, they take uh, Luther quite seriously. They take the doctrine of justification by faith quite seriously. Um, but whereas traditional Protestantism would embed a doctrine of justification within a larger framework that allowed for a heavy emphasis on the moral life, many dispensationalists take an almost antinomian view towards salvation. That is to say that not only are you saved by faith alone, but that it really doesn't matter a hill of beans what you do in your moral life, that you can, you can live like the devil and still be saved. And uh, many Protestants wouldn't argue that, but a lot of fundamentalists would. Um, and, and so there, the teaching of Jesus himself poses a problem for the dispensationalists, because if they're committed to this antinomian view of salvation, that I really can live like the devil and still go to heaven, well, Jesus doesn't say that. I mean, Jesus' teaching is so inescapably ethical, so unavoidably moralistic, that they consider even Christ himself to be a problem. And I'm not exaggerating. That sounds astonishing. Like, how could a Christian consider the teaching of Jesus to be problematic? But they do. <clears throat> and so they solve these two pseudo-problems in the following way. They imagine that God must divide up human history into distinct dispensations, and that his salvific purposes are worked out in very categorized ways, like according to the time period in which he lives, and the man lives. And they put the Old Testament in one dispensation. They actually put the teaching of Jesus in a separate dispensation from that of the church. And the church itself is a problem for them because the church also doesn't see, you know, camels laden with gold traipsing over Jerusalem. So then they imagine a future age in which uh, God's promises to ancient Israel will be fulfilled Jerusalem will become a capital of a political empire. Jesus will come back to reign in a kind of geopolitical way. And they get the church out of the picture by inventing the concept of the rapture. So it's a very convoluted historical scheme that's trying to tie different emphases in the Bible together in an artificial way um, that could have been solved much more simply if they had just conceded the traditional Catholic and Orthodox view of the Bible, which is it we should not read it like fundamentalists. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call. This Saturday, day after tomorrow, the EWTN family celebration. It's not too late. You can grab a plane or you can get in the car and load up the family and head to Birmingham, Alabama. It's going to be a great celebration. You'll hear some wonderful talks from the likes of Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, Father Wade Menezes. We'll have a live show that you can be part of as well. And the whole thing is going to culminate with a glorious Eucharistic procession through the streets of downtown Birmingham from the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Complex all the way down to the Cathedral of St. Paul. Um, it's going to be a wonderful celebration. You can find out more by logging on to EWTN.com slash Family Celebration, and you can register there as well. And every last bit of it is free. Next stop for us is Orange County, California. Oscar is watching us on Facebook Live. Oscar, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hi, I have a question. Um, I'm 38 years old. I, I just feel... Um, I went to Portugal. Um, I'm kind of like very excited. Um, 
But anyways, I'm very interested because I see uh, non-Catholics, um, you know, the youth, are, the youth are losing it because they're going to probably chapel. Um, uh, um, our Catholic church needs to wake up and do the priests need to do like Bible studies or worship, uh, take the soccer man and do events, you know, where, where grown-ups are uh, in them because... Um, so it, 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 how can you reach out people? Like, how can you, how can you do that? Because, uh, I, um, to get the people active, if the priests are not doing their work, you know, it's kind of like, I'm just putting it out there, you know? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, I mean, this is a, this is a question around the country and how can we be more effective at apostolate? How can we do better outreach? How can we be better missionary disciples? I mean, this is the, this is on the Holy Father's heart. Um, this is obviously the motivating vision of EWTN. We're trying to get out there and spread the gospel to as many people as possible in all the media that we can. And uh, how do you do that, especially in your local parish, if you feel like the leadership in your parish isn't really taking the ball and running with it in the way of evangelization? So one thing I can you, you can tell everybody always is be the change you want to see, right? I mean, if you if you think that there needs to be some particular outreach from your parish, you can always start doing that work, right? And, and then hopefully, if it's effective, the parish can bless your efforts or those with whom you collaborate. So you don't have to wait for the parish to give you permission to start a Bible study in your home or to uh, invite non-Catholics to dinner or whatever it might be. You can, you can start doing that. And if, and if you're not gifted in that department, you can certainly network and support people who are doing that kind of work or encourage them to do so if you think they have a particular gifting. So that's, that's one thing that you can do. Now, I will also say that there are plenty of Catholic agencies— that are aimed at uh, outreach to to disaffected youth uh, to help them get integrated into the church and the sacraments. So um, I feel quite sure that there is a youth office in your diocese. Um, You might have a conversation with whoever is directing the youth office in your diocese about what kind of outreach efforts are underway and how you might support them. Um, there, there probably, there may or may not be a youth minister uh, in your particular parish. You might see uh, if they have, say, uh, uh, youth core teams that you might be involved in. You could, you know, volunteer to be a mentor. Um, agencies like Life Teen, which are, you know, ministries to, to try to do exactly what you're talking about, do exist. Um, you can seek to bring them to your parish if they don't exist there already, or if they are, you could uh, support them in other ways. So I agree with your objectives, um, and uh, we always need to do a better job of, of missionary outreach. Um, so, uh, you yeah, be the change you want to see. We head next to the Republic of Texas. Rob is on the road listening to uh, Guadalupe Radio today. Rob, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hello, Dr. David. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How about you? Oh, very well. Thanks for asking. But, um, yeah, so my question is, I agree on um, I agree on some of uh, the stuff that you, um, you were just preaching about or speaking of. Um, so I, you know, by faith, I mean, I'm not 100% sure. I'm, I'm trying to get back into religion, I guess, you know, um, kind of a little nervous, but, uh, that's all right. So I believe that, yeah, you, you, not only by faith, but also that you have to, you know, walk on Jesus's way, like, you know, follow the Ten Commandments, right? Sure. All right. Yeah. So, do you have a question for me, Rob? As I was listening, it caught my uh, ear. Um, was that um, 
basically, um, you know, like how we ask the priest to uh, forgive our sins. Yeah, okay, I can speak to that, absolutely. I really appreciate that question. So, uh, as a Catholic, I believe that everyone can ask God to forgive their sins. And in fact, all Catholics do this every day. You know, the Lord taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we always pray to God directly to forgive our sins. But the first thing Jesus did when he rose from the dead, and he saw the, the disciples was to give them the power to forgive sins directly in his name. So if you read John chapter 20, Christ said to the apostles, um, receive the Holy Spirit whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. And so you might ask the question, well, if I can ask God to forgive my sins, then what value is there in, in delegating an individual to do it in God's name? And here's the value, <clears throat> and this is true not only of confession, but it's true of all the sacraments. Of course, God can give grace in some hidden and invisible way. But he, he also chooses to give it through tangible signs, sensible signs, visible, audible signs, to which he attaches the promise, wherever you have this sign, you also have the reality. And so when I go to confession to a priest, and the priest says, I absolve you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he does so relying on the promise of Christ, <clears throat> whoever sins you forgive are forgiven then I don't just have a kind of hope that my sins are forgiven. I have a moral certainty that they're forgiven <clears throat> because I can rely on this promise of Jesus. And that visible aspect, that relational aspect, is a tremendous encouragement in the life of faith. So God doesn't give us the sacraments to constrain his distribution of grace, but to make it more effective within us psychologically that it gives me something tangible that I can lay hold of to know with certainty that grace has been offered to me. And there's another benefit to confession also, and that is that uh, one has to perform an act of humility. You know, it is, uh, it's not all that challenging to whisper under my covers at night, uh, oh God, please forgive me. It's not all that challenging. But to go stand in front of another human being and say what I've done wrong, requires an act of humility. Now, humility just is at the root of the whole spiritual project. And so a discipline of my life that requires me to practice the virtue of humility <clears throat> on a regular basis is going to be inherently more sanctifying than simply wanting to get out of trouble and asking God in the privacy of my own bedroom to forgive me. Um, the confessional is also linked to the authority of the Church— and to the corporate life of the church. And so in addition to forgiving me, the priest acts as a kind of judge and gatekeeper, if you will, of the treasures of the church, namely the sacraments and the fellowship. And so by submitting myself to the priest, I also submit myself to judgment. And the only thing he's judging, he's not judging my character. He judges one thing, am I contrite? Am I sorry? And having, you know, even the therapists will tell you, if you want to change... Be accountable to somebody else. That's the, best, that's the best way to change. Be accountable to somebody else. And so bringing in that accountability to the church and her, and her juridical authority is yet another way in which the sacrament of confession can help me to grow in holiness. You know, I'm, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith. Uh, I came into the Catholic Church 20 years ago when I was in my 30s. And uh, my experience over the last 20 years has been that if there were one aspect of the Catholic faith that I would keep, if I had to get rid of the rest of it, or it were taken from me for some reason. If I could keep only one thing, I'd keep the confessional.
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Just in the last minute or so we have left here, uh, Dr. Andrews Richard in Ellendale, North Dakota, listening on Ave Maria Radio, is contemplating joining a Relay for Life team, uh, but is aware that the American Cancer Society does use frozen embryos, and he wants to know if that makes his participation problematic. Yeah, so the rule on participation in evil is that we can never formally cooperate with evil. We can never perform an, an action intending the evil result, right? So if your goal in raising money for cancer research was that you wanted to see embryos cut up, that would be absolutely disallowed. You couldn't do that. Um, but uh, you can also m- cooperate with evil materially, which is you provide some support for the evil activity, but you don't intend, you don't intend the evil outcome. And if that material support is sufficiently remote, then it can, under some circumstances, be justified. Now, I don't know enough about the research program uh, to, com- to comment with any kind of degree of authority, but there are, there are principles in Catholicism that allow you to remotely cooperate materially with evil, provided you don't intend that specific outcome. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Andrews, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener, Rich Jesse and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. A big thanks to the good folks here at Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Special thanks to Steve Clark and Eric Dumont for getting us on the air today. And Al Cresta, Mike Jones, and the entire team. Back at it again tomorrow. Until then, God bless.